everybody, it's Seth Rudesky. Welcome to Seth Rudesky's Back to School. This week I talked to award-winning actor B.D. Wong. And one of the things he talks about is having a job working, I think it was in a deli when he was a teenager and it did not work out well. And I was thinking back to jobs I had when I was a teenager. And I guess when I was 16, I worked at haagen And let me just say it wasn't very long lasting. Basically, you know, when you work in a food place, after it closes, you have to clean everything. You have to wash everything down. So at haagen we, let's say, close at nine, but we didn't want to like finish working at nine and then clean everything. We're like, let's just kind of clean it early so we can get out of here at nine. So definitely the shake machine was a splitting headache. So I remember one night, it was like 8.30, did not want to clean the shake machine after, so I just cleaned it early. And someone came in and was like, can I have a vanilla shake with a blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh my God, I'm sorry, we're out of milk. And he's like, oh. So I was like, you know what, I'll just have a coffee to go. I was like, all right, poured him a cup of coffee. And then I literally took out like a giant gallon of milk and was like, how much milk do you want? Suffice it to say, I didn't... (laughs) I didn't really think through what I said five minutes before. I didn't last long. I wasn't even put on shift. Like you work there as temporary and then they finally put you on shift. And after a few weeks of temporary, they're like, yeah, there are no shifts for you. So I'm um, fired at an early age. All right, enjoy some BD Wong. Dreading morning classes. Feeling bathroom passes. Football. Drivers and SATs. Bullies that attack me. Why do I have back knees? Jack straps. Training bras. Frenemies. We remember back then. It's like freshman year again. Ready, steady, now you're in it. Let's go south as any minutes ever. Dad's back to school. BD Wong. Hey everyone, it's Seth Rudetsky. We are back to school today with Mr. BD Wong. You know him from Law and Order SVU, Jurassic Park. He was in Mulan. Yes, he won a Tony Award for M Butterfly and starred in one of my absolute favorite shows in the entire world, Oz. Hi, BD. Hi. Golly, hi. Um, Okay, so BD Wong, I know you're from the West Coast. And when did you graduate? Uh, Born and raised in San Francisco. Went to Abraham Lincoln High School in the Sunset District of San Francisco. Graduated in 1978. Give me, if you would, a typical day in high school. Who was waking you up? What was your breakfast? How the hell did you get to school? Oh, wow. I don't even... All of a sudden, I'm panicked because I don't know if I can even remember such a thing. I may have blacked it out. Um, my mom and dad would go to, ah, yeah, my mom and dad would go to work around the same time. If I wanted a ride to school, I'd have to be ready at a certain time to get in the car. I lived about a couple miles from school, so I could walk or I could take the bus if I didn't do that. So I generally opted to get this ride. And I don't remember breakfast at all. You know, I just recently in the pandemic have started eating Cocoa Krispies. And I know that the reason why I'm doing that is because I had Cocoa Krispies a lot when I was a kid. And that I was like gravitating to all these like childhood treats that I used to have. And so I know that I had Cocoa Krispies every once in a while. I know that you're Chinese American. Were your parents from China? Or are they? Are you second generation? What's the deal? Yeah, I'm actually uh, third. Gen- My great grandparents came over from Hong Kong. So my parents were born in San Francisco. They are a generation of people that I have a great deal of admiration for because they really kind of had what I feel like is like a kind of a tightrope walk that they were doing. You know, they were all American kids during the day and they were very Chinese kids at night when they got home. When I look at my dad and mom's old photo albums, there are all these beautiful pictures of them in jeans with bright red lipstick, playing basketball and having picnics and driving these giant cars and stuff. And then at home, they had a very Chinese, Chinese-speaking parents who didn't uh, ever speak English and lived in Chinatown. 
and were very insulated and lived in China. So my parents had this kind of, they were the generation that opened up the whole notion of what we used to call assimilation, you know. Did they try to push you to be more quote unquote American or did they say you got to become more American to fit in? They didn't do either. They were not teachers by verbal communication. They were just teachers by the fact that they were living very American lives and that they spoke English and that, they, you know, it, it, was, it was very just like by living in that house, that's what I got from the experience. It wasn't because they said, you must do this or you must do that. They did have rather traditional ideas at first about my being a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, or being choosing what we all call a reliable uh, vocation. And my older brother, who's nine years older than me, became a doctor and was in and out of med school by the time I was in high school. So it was kind of like he took one for the team as far as I was concerned, because then it made it a little bit easier when I started acting and they started debating and worrying about what that actually meant. It made it a little bit easier to overcome that conversation. They weren't the hardest parents to please, but they did have tenets that they adhered to and they valued my academic success, which was really hard for me. I was not a great student. Basic algebra, I still don't understand. How did you do the SATs? I cannot tell you, I didn't fail them. So SATs, I guess, weren't that important to you because at that point, maybe you weren't thinking of going into like college for like an academic thing. You were thinking more of going to an arts program. I should have gone to a much more rigorous theater program. And I blew it off. I didn't understand it. I picked one school that I really wanted to get into and I didn't get into it. And I just kind of ended up going to the college that was in my town. And I, um, it was a terrible program and I didn't do well there. And I had an incredible relationship with my high school drama teacher, which paled in comparison. So I came to New York. I just quit school and came to New York. And I don't really recommend it, but it worked for me. How did you wind up wandering into the theater department in the first place if you didn't know that you loved it? Oh, because I was playing the violin. And then when I got into high school, I was in a class and Mr. Testo came in and said, we are recruiting kids to play in the school orchestra for the uh, school play. And I was sitting next to this girl, Sherry Samuel. She was like this theatrical girl. And I said to her, oh, well, I'm going to go do that because I play the violin. That sounds like it's really fun because I'd seen musicals and I knew what they were. And I thought this would be really fun to be involved in a musical. And she said, oh, no. She said, oh, no. She said, the action is not in the orchestra pit, the action is on the stage. And I secretly really wanted her to make me go to the tryouts. And she did. She brought me to the tryouts and I met Mrs. Chanis on that day. And I went through the whole audition process and all these upperclassmen or whatever got the big parts. And she says, I can't give you a big part, but if you come to rehearsal, I'll just give you little parts. And I came to rehearsal every day and I sat inches from her every day. And then she gave me a, the cop and she gave me a little role here, a little voiceover part here. And that at the end of it was Guys and Dolls. At the end of it, I had this huge part, actually, all these like, costume changes and all these different little featured parts. It was the voice of Joey Biltmore on the phone. And I was one of the three in the beginning, the opening. And I was a I got the horse right yeah, here. It seems really silly, but at the time I was so invested and she just kind of took me in and I had a, a very intimate relationship with her. And she chose material that she thought I would be challenged by and good in. And I learned by doing some great parts, having great roles. And she was extremely supportive and gave me the confidence that allowed me to figure out that I could actually quit school and come to New York. Actually, that's how it actually worked. 
And if you're in theater, I'm sure you were surrounded by kids that either grew up to be gay or maybe even were out at that point. What was it like? Were you getting crushed on boys and did you ever act on any of it? Yeah, I I, 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 I know I'm watching, you know, have you ever seen this TV show, Sex Education? It's about kids in high school having sex, basically. And I realized when I watch it, wow, I just, that experience is so different from the one that I had. I was very not connected with other kids or having sex with them or going after them. And I don't even remember who I would have if I was there. I mean, I had crushes on guys that were unattainable like we all did, but I wasn't really that active or dating. I was really obsessed with being on stage. And I'm still like that now, like kind of obsessive. So you kind of sublimated your sexual energy. I think I did, yeah. Now, meanwhile, I will say that I grew up in San Francisco and it was San Francisco in the 70s. And so I was very aware of gay energy all around me. And I did have one gay buddy that we would like sneak out and go to go to bars and stuff like that. They would let us into the bars. We were 17 years old and have little adventures. And, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. This was our our sex education was really it's really kind of very scary when you think about it. But. I was aware of the politics and of the fact that I was in a place where there was a different relationship to homophobia. There was this one gay bar that I was attracted to because of the signage. In the 70s, I guess everywhere, but in San Francisco, there was a lot of deco. We were all like revisiting the 20s and 30s, and we were like really deco lettering. And I was really into fonts even back then. And this place was called Busby's. That was the name of the bar. And of course, I was really obsessed with old Hollywood musicals and movies and Busby Berkeley and all of that stuff. And so I was like, well, that's my bar, Busby's. And so Dennis and I snuck ourselves into this bar and we would have these kind of things like, well, uh, you know, we were, it's, ter- I mean, I'm, I'm actually still kind of uncomfortable discussing that we were underage kids just as a side, kind of more serious, you know, I realized that a lot of times when I think of guys that I dated, and I put dated in quotation marks, but I went out with these guys, and now when I look back, I think, oh, wow, they were kind of like um, pervs, because I thought I was grown up, but I looked like 12 when I was 17, and where were they coming from? You know, it was after I was in SVU for a while, and we started exploring things like this, that I started thinking, oh, what were those guys thinking that were going out with me? How old were they? Well, they were, like, in their 20s. They weren't my age. They were in their 20s. They uh-huh. might have been in their 30s. I mean, I actually can't even tell. They weren't old men, but they were, they could be 35 easily, Right. Okay, so back to the bar. Well, so we're in the bar and and we would do this thing like you would think, like we were like Romy and Michelle. Oh, if I meet someone, this is what, you know, know, don't be upset if I leave without you. You know, all of that Romy and Michelle kind of stuff. And Mm. I think he went off with somebody and then came back. And I was still there, loser that I was. And I was like, oh my God. And he told me the story about how this guy had, I don't know how to explain it, some kind of ink and he'd put a guy's feet in the ink, and he had footprints of these different guys on his ceiling. He would, like, do some acrobatic thing with them sexually, and one of the ways that he would document this was by putting ink on the soles of their feet, and then they, we, he would, like... I don't really know exactly what it was. It wasn't me. I wasn't the one that experienced this, but I remember thinking, this is what it means to be a grown-up, right? This is like... <laughs> 
this is like a sexually advent, you know, this is a, a sexually active person. It wasn't anything, I mean, it's a little creepy and it's a little bit like weird, but it was just interesting and not violent enough to seem really intriguing. Hmm. Right. It's right on the borderline of cool. Yeah, it was a little bit like, was it like a, yeah, like a Warhol thing? And did you wind up appropriating that in your own life and put someone's like ass cheeks no, in? No, I didn't, and but then it's you... never too late, Seth. It's never too late. Girl, that is my motto. So that that was the, the vibe of what it was like to be out with Dennis. And um, we didn't drink. We just had like sodas and stuff like that. You were on the prowl. Yeah, we were, we thought we were so cool, like on the prowl like that. So you weren't scared about growing up to be gay? I wasn't. I was sad about it because I thought it meant I couldn't be a parent or I thought it was a lonely, scary life. But I also, you know, I wasn't religious, so I didn't carry that baggage. Over the years, I've had an ongoing on again, off again kind of homophobic relationship to my own. Um, what would you call it? Uh, the way I act. You know, there was always like when you were a kid, they would say things like, oh, you know, you were really diminished for being a sissy or for being effeminate or for being one thing or another. I, I was always kind of a borderline sissy. My mom taught me how to knit when I was five years old. I was a huge knitter. I still am. And I used to knit things like ponchos and things and wear them. And so I could feel people around me like not really knowing how to process that at all. They were really, really uncomfortable about it or secretly kind of derisive. Not Nothing too overt, actually. But I could feel the energy around me of disapproval in some way. And I've always dealt with, throughout my career, dealt with, oh, wow, you really have to put it up for this. Or you really have to, you know, figure out how to get what you want by playing both sides of the fence. And enjoying that and making that part of my arsenal. You know, I, I, I discovered when I was in high school with Mrs. Chambers, that I was kind of a character actor. I liked doing character parts and speaking in different dialects and things like that. And this all kind of became part of it, performance. You seem kind of like a golden child in a lot of ways. Did you ever get in trouble in school? No, I was really, really very clean. I didn't smoke weed. I didn't drink. And a lot of my, I was always kind of making fun, like I still am with my friends now, about like, hey, you guys, we should be rehearsing or we should go like, hey, we're supposed to be doing this. And I wanted to just rehearse all the time. I just wanted to, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to do it. I wanted to do any version of what it is that we do. As soon as I discovered what it felt like to do it, I just wanted to do it all the time. What about like after school job? Did you ever have to earn any money in like an ice cream pot? Ooh, what? Mrs. Chanis got me a job at, oh, this was a disaster, at Herb's Deli. And Herb's Deli was this deli. Every Thursday day, they had a lunch special, which was a meatball sandwich that Herb's wife made, this big pot of meatballs. And they would line up outside the door. And I worked at Herb's Deli. And I was fired because I took too long to make these arty sandwiches that I thought I was making. Like they just say, would you just put... Just close it and put it in the wrapper and give it to the guy. And I was just like, kind of like laying, you know, like I was making these beautiful sandwiches. Well, it was a huge disaster. I got fired there. And I was an usher. And this was a really great discovery that I made, that I could be an usher for the touring houses in town. I got a union card to be an usher. And I, you know, I saw Angela Lansbury and Sweeney Todd like 90 times, you know, because I could just watch it every night. It was like a dream job. 
And then when I left to go to New York, they threw this party for me. The ushers threw a party for me. This is the Golden Gate Theater in San Francisco. And everybody was kind of like, mm, yes, good luck. You know, they were not really on board with what I was doing. They didn't go to high school with me, so they didn't ever like see me perform or anything like that. But I was going to New York to be like an actor. And so they were very kind of, oh, yeah, here's a cake for you. We'll miss you and all that stuff. And then I got my first job. It was like a year later, I think. No, two years later. It was 1984, and I left in 1981 or 82. So two or three years later, I got the West Coast Company of La Caja Fall. Wow. And we went back to that theater. And so all of a sudden, I, the, they were all still ushers there. <gasps> and I went back to the, the Golden Gate Theater, and I was like, oh, you guys, I'm coming to work through a different door now. And that was very satisfying. I was very smug about it because I could feel their, I don't know, what was, um, skepticism. Yes, skepticism, lack of faith. Lack of faith, yeah. Obviously, you were obsessed with theater, but what did you fear your adulthood would be like? What was your worst fear about what could happen to your adult life? You know, my good friend David Herson, who wrote the play La Bette, wrote a follow-up play years later called Wrong Mountain. And I won't even go into this plot of Wrong Mountain. It's very complicated. But the reason for the title is that a man goes through his whole life and does not realize that he has been climbing the wrong mountain. And so I think that is what I would have feared. I feel a little emotional about this. That I would choose something or that it would choose me or that I would feel so strongly that something had chosen me and that I would commit my life and my blood and my passion and my heart to it and that I would find out somehow uh, uh, late in life that it was somehow the wrong choice. I think that's just the most profoundly upsetting thing to imagine for a person's life. And there was a whole lot of discussion. You know, it's a very hard life. Are you sure you know what you're doing? There are not a lot of Asian American people in the media and on television or in the movies. Why do you want to do this? And I was constantly riddled with this sense of this could be a really big mistake. So dramatic. Would you remember <laughs> one particular moment in high school where you were completely mortified? Either like you got a perm or you... <laughs> You tell me. Well, I did get a lot of perms. I mean, that's why I'm laughing, because there's tons of pictures of me with various strange, curious perms, like what were you thinking kind of perms. You could do a whole panel discussion on hair and ethnic hair and what people feel about their own identity based upon their hair. And I was no different. I had straight black hair. It wouldn't blow dry the way that I wanted it to. It wouldn't feather the way that I wanted it to. And I would... I, my mom, who was, you know, a home permer, would give me a home perm. And I would sit there in the chair and stink up the kitchen and she would do this perm. So I did that a lot. And I wasn't mortified about it really while it was happening so much. I was kind of feeling like I was, I don't know what you call it, uh, marching to my own drummer or something like that. Um, but you say, you're you saying mortified. You know, I was once I discovered the theater, I was remarkably saved from mortifying moments. I had a lot of really wonderful moments that were not mortifying. Well, oh, well, okay. I'm still constantly reminded by Gabrielle Motajami, who played Marion the Librarian and the Music Man, that she had to wait for about seven minutes because I lost the bag of marshmallows. 
that was supposed to be in the, the end of the Mary and the Librarian scene. And I went running all over the school looking for this thing while it just went dun 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 for seven minutes. I'm thinking, I can't go on the stage without the marshmallows. The marshmallows are super important. The marshmallows are the button of the scene. What am I going to do? I'm just running around like I'm not realizing how much time is going by. I ended up getting a paper bag and taking a piece of binder paper and ripping it up and scrunching up these little balls of white paper, putting it in the thing and going on <sighs> like that. And so I was too arrogant, actually, to be mortified by this. But when I think back on it and we talk about it, we have Facebook about it and we make jokes of, about it, I am kind of mortified. It's so OCD. Yeah. Like that. I mean, it so doesn't matter whether there's a marshmallow. Yes. I mean, now I, now I get it. But I was panicked. I didn't want to be the guy who didn't have the marshmallows. I'd rather have been the guy that made the leading lady wait for seven minutes at that time. <laughs> Was there anyone you were obsessed with that was famous when you were in high school that you then, when you grew up, actually got to meet or work with? The only thing that comes to mind is that one of the things that I, I was obsessed with a chorus line. And when I was in early high school is when it came out and came to town and I stood by the stage door with the original cast album and I had them sign the, the cast album. I still have it. And I was obsessed with it. And... Then I, a couple of years later, another tour came through and it was another production of The Chorus Line and I watched it every night. There was a point where I was an usher and I kind of would chat with some of the actors. They would come out and warm up before and you had to be really careful. You'd get in trouble if you chatted with the actors. But if they came out on stage for the warm up before the house opened, you could kind of like sit there and kind of chat with them. And I became friendly with Tracy Shane. Tracy Shane was BB in that company, and then she went on to play Cosette in Les Mis, and she was very sweet. And I was this 16-year-old kid that bought her flowers when she left the company to do something else. They were, like, making a big deal. Oh, this is Tracy's last performance. This is Tracy's last performance. I didn't know her. She didn't know me. I bought her flowers, and she was very sweet. And she said, I'll never forget you, and it was very sweet. And then I went to see Les Mis years later and wrote her a note. This was after I had won the Tony. And I wrote this long letter at the end of the punchline was, and then this is me, I, you know, I was that guy who gave you the flowers. And, and we had this like reunion, which was super sweet and really very touching. And it just was the most positive of kind of reunions that you could have with a person. Because I was just this dumb kid who was obsessed with the actors in the, in the show. And it was one of those examples of an actor being really nice to somebody who was, they had no need, didn't have to be. And it was me, the one who didn't forget, actually. You know, it's like I never forgot her. Now it's time for This or That. In this segment, I make my guest choose between two pop culture sensations from their high school years. IBD, were you 8-track player, 45s, or cassettes? Cassettes, for sure. Cassettes. Yes, me too. But what would happen when all the tape would suddenly unwind and then you'd have to spin it back with a pencil? Didn't with that... a pencil. Yeah. Hated it, man. I did it. Yeah. And I was even like editing them. Like I remember taking them and like cutting them and taping them back together and trying to mix things that way. I remember the smell of them. I remember my dad came to my elementary school with a cassette player and recorded my chorus performances. There was a guy on the radio every week, Jim Gabbard. He had a really quirky, all his own radio show where he'd play really eclectic, strange music and sound effects and strange things like that. And I would record it coming out of the radio and so that I could play it back and listen to it again. I loved him. 
Were you into old school games like Stratego or you into like Simon? I think it was more like Stratego. I'm older. It's Stratego and Mousetrap. That was really, I was really into Mousetrap. I think of that as an example of how my mind was always kind of looking for theater. And Mousetrap is a very kind of theatrical, it's a game with a set, (laughs) is how I think of it. It was a great game. They should reissue that game. So true. Now, in terms of Norman Lear's show, were you Uh, on The Family, Jefferson's Maud, One Day at a Time? Which one was your show? It was All in the Family. All Uh. in the Family, to this day, is profoundly great. And I just, in quarantine, watched... We're in now in the fifth year of watching every episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show. And it's sublime, really. It's just like wonderfully interesting time capsule and performances and really interesting writing in context of the time that it took place in. All of those things. Really great. In terms of empty calories, were you Love Boat or Fantasy Island? I was not an empty calories person. I was a little bit of a snob. I was like, oh, those old celebrity shows, those kind of like guest star shows, I didn't find them amusing. I wasn't into them. Here's the other thing. I mean, since I'm talking to you, you'll appreciate that I was super into disaster movies. And I was super Uh, into The Poseidon Adventure. And The Poseidon Adventure was my favorite movie of all time. And I was just absolutely obsessed with it. I built the Poseidon Adventure Christmas tree for our Christmas of 1976 or 70, whatever it was, 74. And I was just obsessed with that movie. You recreated the way the Christmas tree looked on the Poseidon Adventure? Yeah. with cellophane and wooden dowels and green cellophane. Remember the green cellophane? It had little squiggly lines in it. And gold satin and green satin and silver satin balls and a gold garland really thick. So where do you get a garland that thick? It was like really thick. You know, I didn't know about art direction in those days. I thought they just bought everything. And my dad, bless his heart, he was really great. We went into the garage and he took this giant curtain rod kind of wooden dowel and made a Christmas tree out of it with wooden dolls and drilling holes in the... It was incredible. I'll show you pictures of it. It's really great. Please, God, did you turn it upside no, down? No, I didn't. I wanted to. And then I thought it was really... People wouldn't get it or it was... I wanted to. I really did. Next time. Yeah. In terms of commercial catchphrases that have never left your head, were you... He likes it. Hey, Mikey. Or pretty sneaky, sis. Which one is stay with you to this day? He likes it, Mikey. For me, really, I know this is kind of shameful. It was ancient Chinese secret. Okay, that was like a stain on our... We couldn't decide whether to like it or hate it. We could not decide. Well, there's a Chinese person in a commercial. That's great. Oh, they're in a laundry. Oh, darn it. And oh, they don't have accents. That's good, too. Ancient Chinese secret. And then the bad line reading of it was like, oh, Darn it. (laughs) (laughs) There were pluses and minuses. Amazing deconstruction. This is High School Versus Now, where we find out how much my guest has changed since high school. So how would you react in high school? Who's, you mentioned you had various unrequited crushes. Give me one of the straight guys you had a crush on. Um, does it have to be a student? <laughs> Mr. Penzel, the assistant coach of the PE department. I guess you're in high school. You find out Mr. Penzel is actually gay, but then he tells you he only dates white dudes. Uh-huh. What would your reaction be? Oh, I wouldn't. I would just take that as information. And I, I would, would never have considered myself eligible Like, that's what's so interesting about watching this show, Sex Education, that I've been watching on cable. It's like these kids who are just like really owning their own, like, I want that and I want to go after that. And not even thinking about their own, what I had in high school, which I think a lot of young people had in high school when they were gay and and a long time ago, is this sense of kind of self-hatred or self, like thinking you were ugly, kind of. 
assuming you were kind of ugly because you had this thing. And, and they don't have that. They're kind of fierce, really. That was not you. Well, what about, this is an adult version of that in a different way, but not about sex. There's a movie you totally want to be in. Let's say it's Poseidon Adventure mm-hmm. is being redone, but then you can't get an audition because your agent says they're not, quote unquote, going ethnic. Yeah. What would your reaction be now? Twitter. <gasps> I would go right to Twitter where you can get lots of free things, free services, lifetime memberships for things that you would never have to pay for again because you complained on Twitter. And Twitter, all kidding aside, is a very useful place to discuss things that are actually important. And you bring up things and there are, as you know, these incredible organizations, watchdog organizations and um, advocacy organizations that are all linked into us with the celebrities and with the community. And discussing things and raising consciousness about things. And so I think this would be one way that you would do that. Tweet that shiz. Okay, you're back in high school. They're doing a chorus line. You audition. You're offered assistant box office manager. Uh You come home devastated and you comfort yourself by doing what? Reenacting the final scene of Sissy SpaceX Carrie by going to the performance at lighting the auditorium on fire. And <laughs> and um, spilling pig's blood on whoever got my part. <laughs> Vengeance. <laughs> How about now you're an adult, you filmed your pilot, your comedy pilot called Oh That BD, and the pilot is not going to series. You come home devastated, but comfort yourself. How? Hot bath, fried chicken, Mary Tyler Moore. Knitting is really, really meditative for me. Creature comforts. But not vengeance anymore. It wouldn't be vengeance anymore, no. You have grown. (laughs) Okay. If anyone is listening from Abraham Lincoln High School right now to this podcast, is there anything you'd like to say to either the entire student body or to the faculty or to one particular person? What would you say? Well, I would say, first of all, it's nice that I'm actually in touch with these people. I'm sure you know a little bit about how this works. I'm in touch with them on social media. And so I, I, I don't think I have anything to say to them that I haven't already said. They are really supportive of things that I'm doing. Oh, I had this incredible reunion. Okay, so I got to tell you a little bit about this because I was in a play in San Francisco and I took the play at ACT in San Francisco for my mom. So that my mom could invite all her friends and family to see me in a play on stage, which you can't do all the time. And it was a great experience. And one of the other things that I did was I reconnected with my drama teacher's daughter, who was three years old at the time that we were in high school. Her mother died very, very young. And I was like, whatever happened to Anya Chanis? Whatever happened to Anya Chanis? And we, I connected back with her. And she was coming to the show. And she happened to be coming to the show the same night that all my high school friends were coming. And they were going to meet for a drink afterwards. And I said, you know, Ani, it would be great if you could just come with me to the hotel and just say hi to the people. That I'm sure they'd love to see you. And I knew that the high school friends would be really into seeing Ani because in those days, you took care of my teacher's kids. Like we would watch her when my teacher went and did something. It was a completely different world, right? We were very involved in our teacher's life, this particular teacher, and we were very close to this child. She has no clue of this at all. And so I took her to the hotel and she's a grown woman. She's a middle-aged grown woman. And I said, I want to introduce you to my friend who I've been looking for for many years. And I said, this is Anya Chanis. And everyone screamed and cried in this hugely cathartic way. The group hugging, and it was so satisfying. And that is kind of emblematic of my relationship with my high school friends who I'm in touch with on social media. We have lots of wonderful experiences like that to this day. 
Well, finally then, let me ask you this. If 15-year-old B.D. Wong were listening right now through a broken time-space continuum, what would you say to him? I honestly feel like the things that I've experienced, good and bad, positive and negative, happy and sad, I wouldn't trade any of them. And they all add up to something that makes you who you are. All I can say to you now is that I'm almost 60 years old and I'm really happy with who I am. And so all you have to do is go for the ride because you just don't resist it because it's all going to turn out great. I say brava. BD, that was so fun. Thank you. Anything for you, Seth. Thanks. Seth Rudetsky's Back to School is produced by Sarah Esikoff. Our theme music was written by me, Seth Rudetsky, and sung by me and Maggie McDowell. Our band was me, Seth Rudetsky, Mark Schmid, Carrie Meads, and Jim Hirschman. This episode was mixed by Sarah Esikoff. Seth Rudetsky's Back to School is a Sirius XM production.